Well, hearing a little bit about the uh, team that's in Italy is a perfect transition into our time in the Word this morning. As you just heard, we had an evangelistic camp, um, out of which people were encouraged, some perhaps converted. And the challenge is that many of them, if not most of them, will now go back into churches that have ill-equipped pastors and very watered-down doctrinal convictions, and the growth that they've begun could be very difficult. The title for today is Shaming the Devil with Church-Trained Pastors. Shaming the Devil with Church-Trained Pastors. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. As you're turning there, today is our annual Sunday in which we remind ourselves about the gift and responsibility that Mission Road Bible Church has by possessing a campus of the Expositors Seminary. Let me explain to you what TES, the Expositors Seminary, is, just to give you a little uh, insight in case you're only barely familiar with it or maybe not at all. What we have is a coalition of 10 churches that are connected by a very uh, high-level video conferencing Um, um, technology in which we can, from any of those campuses, teach the local campus as well as the other campuses simultaneously. After the first few seconds when you're in there, whether you're listening or whether I'm teaching, you just lose the sense that you're not in the same room. It's that good. At each campus, we have students studying for their Master of Divinity degrees. In fact, I don't know how many of our students are here this morning. We have seven a couple of which over are over from Breck Apprenticus Church. If you're a TES student, would you just stand very quickly? Let me see if I can identify you. Tim Taylor in the back, Steve Collin, James, Matt as well. See these guys around. Thanks, guys. Just grateful that the Lord has given us students who are studying here. Now, with the 10 coalition churches, we have a similar, if not identical, philosophy of ministry with each other. We share expertise across the campuses. Let me explain what that means. For example, our our Greek uh, professor is in Jupiter, Florida. Our Hebrew professor teaches from Houston. I do the preaching classes and I teach from Kansas City. They're shared and we all get to have uh, interaction with each other student-wise and with the teachers as well. The best way to explain TES to you is to explain my experience with seminary and what this is like. When I went to seminary at the Master Seminary back in 1988, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I went to seminary and then got involved in a church. This is on its head from that. We ask students to come and get involved in our local churches and also study and get a Master of Divinity. The accent is on the church. While you're there in Titus chapter 2, let me read verses 6 through 8. And then we'll specifically understand that in light of our responsibility to train men for ministry. Paul tells Titus, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, to have purity in doctrine, to be dignified, to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, and this is where our title comes from, so that the opponent 
will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Paul is talking to Titus about his specific fitness and progression toward ministry readiness. And he says, if you're fit, if you're ready for ministry, then the devil will be put to shame. That responsibility lies squarely at the doors of the local church. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul's telling Titus, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders or church leaders in every city as I directed you. When you put these verses together, when you stitch them together, when you look at the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, a burden begins surfacing in the Apostle Paul's mind. The need for qualified, trained, equipped, and vetted church leaders. You know 2 Timothy 2 too very well, right? The things Paul says to Timothy, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now for over 500 years, Protestants have rightly battled against Roman Catholicism's tradition of apostolic succession. You know, where Peter was the first pope and it kind of was passed down from there. It's a theory that continued descent from the apostles to this present day is transmitted through the Roman church's consecration. Now, we wouldn't believe that, but I do think we, we miss something by not seeing something of a succession that goes back to the apostles. J.L. Dagg, a Baptist theologian, who I really appreciate his, in the 19th century, he said this, the obligation of particular men to give themselves to ministry of the ministry of the word was intended to be a perpetual arrangement, not confined to just the ministers appointed by Christ in person. Special ability and special obligation to preach and teach were to be perpetuated in men separated to the service from the body of Christ's disciples, end quote. In other words, the succession of ministerial faithfulness has been handed to us by those that Jesus uh, chose in that first generation of believers. We are facing a crisis today, and I know that can be an overstated sentence, but we really are, in the world of training the next generation of pastors. It can be summed up by asking this question. Who is responsible for the training and vetting of the next generation of pastors. Think about that. Who is responsible for training, for testing, for vetting, for equipping the next generation of pastors? Is it the denomination? Seminaries? Privately done by self? I think God's answer is it's the church. John Frame recounts the experience of Gardner Spring. He was one of the great minds of Princeton Theological Seminary when it was a haven of biblical faithfulness. Listen to what Frame says. He writes, In 1848, after 34 years on the board of Princeton Theological Seminary, the Reverend Gardner Spring wrote a book called The Power of the Pulpit, wherein he compared the generation of seminary-trained ministers with the older generation of pastorally-trained ministers. 
Though Spring had no interest in turning back the clock, doing away with seminaries, realizing the practical impossibility of such, he indeed was deeply committed to the work of Princeton being closely aligned with a local church. And he reluctantly concluded that the older generation was nobly, notably superior to the younger generation in pastoral effectiveness and spiritual maturity. He advocated three things. He said that the seminary faculty should maintain close supervision, not only over a student's academic process, but also over his social and spiritual development. Secondly, that seminaries, their faculty should consist of men with extensive pastoral experience. And thirdly, that no student would ever be ordained to the ministry until he has spent time in an apprenticeship with an experienced pastor, end quote. Now, before anyone suggests that we abandon the institutional seminary model, I am not suggesting that. Let me just say from the beginning, I am a blessed man to have attended and gotten degrees from three seminaries. I'm so thankful for my training at the Master Seminary. It was linked inextricably to the local church. I'm so thankful for my, my, ministry, my uh, training at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was constantly asking for evaluation of the people who were overseeing me when I was in the church. And I'm very grateful for where I'm studying now at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary just up the road, where their byline is for the church, never wanting to rob the church of the ultimate parameters and authority to lay hands on men and ordain them for ministry. So let me just say that institutional seminaries, the, the seminaries that we have uh, in existence now, I'm not arguing against them. So I praise God for those. I, I've attended three and have degrees from two. Also, it's simply unrealistic for most churches to have a training center for pastors due to a lot of factors. Uh, sometimes the responsibilities of a pastor in a smaller church are way too great for him to, to take that on. The training of the pastor himself might limit that. Some pastors are, are not equipped in, in Greek and in Hebrew and in the depths of theology as they would like to be. So we're not trying to argue against the institutional model today. Rather, I want to encourage all of us to consider our responsibility as church members to the training, equipping, and vetting of the future generation of pastors because we are watching them shepherd and pastor in our church now. Back to Titus. Titus is on an island. It's Crete. Apparently there were several house churches that had met because of the expansion of the gospel, people coming to faith in Christ, and they didn't have elders or leaders. Now, without going into a full uh, study, know that the word pastor, elder, and overseer are identical. In 1 Peter 5 and in Acts chapter 20, those three words in, in Greek in either um, a verbal or a noun form are used synonymously. Presbyteros, which is elder. Episcopos, which is overseer. Poimain, shepherd or pastor. They're used as the same office. So when Titus is told by Paul, make sure that you are appointing elders, that's the same thing as appointing pastors, appointing leaders, appointing shepherds. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul gives instructions for various categories of believers, the older and younger women, the older and younger men. And what makes this section of the pastoral epistles intriguing is that 
It's unique in calling the pastor's attention to the need to minister to different groups of the church specifically. Timothy isn't told to do that in Ephesus, though I'm sure they would have gotten the letter to Titus eventually. And he also isolates not just older and younger men, not just older and younger women. He isolates Titus himself. So for our time together this morning, I want to show you the urgent, critical necessity to see our shared responsibility to train, equip, give opportunities to, minister to, and to be ministered from these men who are training for church leadership. We're going to dial in on verses 6 through 8. Now, previous to this text, Paul has said, set things in order in the church. And the first thing he says in chapter 1 is get church leadership right. I think it's fair to say that that's the first domino in the health of any church. Are the church leaders godly men? We could even say, are the church leaders men? But that's another story. That's another sermon. Are the church leaders trained? Have they been equipped? Can people vouch for their character, for their calling, for their equipped uh, 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 nature in different categories of ministry? Can, can people affirm their aspiration to this office? Now, if you're sitting in the pew thinking, well, this is an interesting idea, but it has very little to do with me personally I hope by the end of our time together this morning, you will think completely different. Church leaders don't train church leaders. Churches do. It takes an entire body of Christ to fully invest in, receive from, vet, and equip a man who's headed for ministry. I love how this this passage ends in verse 8, so that the enemy may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul recognizes the us there is the church leader. He's talking about Titus and, him, and himself. He's saying that the enemy, Satan, the demonic realm, the enemies of the gospel who are supplied with power by the demonic forces, they are eager and waiting to put shame to people in the church. And the place they look first are to the leaders. Regrettably, I have the experience of looking back in my own ministry life and knowing many men who have fallen away in morality from their qualification, some who have fallen away from their faith in apostasy. And I think it's fair to say that the majority of these men that I've seen who have fallen from a position of leadership fell because early in their ministry, things were ignored. Early in their training, things were overlooked. Sometimes the can was kicked down the road. Let's wait till they get into church. They'll deal with those character issues then. Listen, friends, it is our responsibility now to invest in these men. Let me also say this, I, I, and I want to say this because we have a, a few students from Midwestern who are attending our church. We have an equal responsibility to them. This is not just about our training these men and no one else. God has gifted us with an amazing seminary that has completely turned around in the seven years I've been here in Kansas City watching it from afar. We have a responsibility to them who have joined our church as well. In fact, we have uh, uh, Dr. Owen Strand who's, who has joined our church, who's one of their professors, and I, 
I am quoting a book that he and Kevin Van Hooser wrote. When I say this, it's pastor as public theologian. They write, pastor theologians must have confidence, listen, that the ministry of the gospel is more than another helpful profession. Let me read that again. Pastor theologians must have confidence that the ministry of the gospel is more than just another helpful profession. Why? Because what we're dealing with is eternity. What we're talking about is the health and stake of the souls of men and women. And it's our responsibility to train public theologians who are pastors. In that excellent book, Really, the premise is that when a pastor stands in front of a congregation, and I would put that down to a Sunday school teacher, I would put it even into a children's and nursery worker who's teaching. You're standing and putting theology on public display. It should be tested. Praise God we live in a day where you have, you have a Bible. You can come and say, I, does that really mean that, Rick? Is, it, is that what this really means? It's tested. It's vetted. There's this wonderful accountability we share with each other. We're aiming to train theologians who are pastors, but also pastors who are indeed well-equipped theologians. If we do this, the enemy, is it okay to love this, will be put to shame. Why? He will have nothing bad to say about us, Paul says, you and me, Titus, but that also is the signature of the church as well. So let's deal, dial down on this, and I want to study with you five characteristics to cultivate in the church's future pastors. This is not for me and the elders. This is for all of us. Five characteristics to cultivate in the church's future pastors. Now, that's even a, should be in probably quotation marks because they are shepherd pastors now, not later. One of the things, by the way, I, um, I probably hear more than anything else. I, I've been in ministry for 35 years and have a pretty big network of friends. And that works well for me and it works well for them. We're always asking each other, hey, do you, we have a, need a youth pastor. We need a music pastor. We need a children's pastor. We need a senior pastor. We need this, that, or the other. And here's what I'm finding. I want you to think about this. Most churches looking for a pastor Want someone with experience. Very few churches are willing to be the church that gives such experience. Isn't that interesting? Oh, we want someone with five years, with 10 years. I'm just begging for the Lord one day to have someone call me and say, I want someone who's freshly trained in the church who can grow with us who can grow for us, who can grow in us, who, who we, can, we can have and serve and develop ourselves. I want us to be that church that gives experience way before we expect it. Five characteristics to cultivate in the church's future pastors. Number one, a pattern of self-control. A pattern of self-control. Verse six, urge the young men to be sensible. Now this is talking about the young men. The next phrase we'll talk about Titus, but Titus was indeed a young man also. Urge the young men to be sensible. The word here used is very familiar. It's, it's uh, parakaleo. In other words, someone 
urge them, come alongside them, get in their life, call them along with you. Don't do it from a position of an ivory tower. You do it with ministerial mud on your jersey and blood on your jersey as well. He shifts Titus' focus from exhorting the older men, the older women, to the younger men and the younger women. And here in verse 6, he specifically talks to the younger men of whom Titus would have been a part. He says, be sophroneo. Literally, be clear-headed or self-controlled. By the way, this characteristic is urged on, on behalf of the older men and the, uh, the, the older and the younger men and women as well in verses two and five. It means to be reasonable, to be sensible, to be serious. I just watched a video that someone sent to me. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you watch something and it's, it's funny and you begin laughing and then the more you think about what you're watching, your, your humor turns to grief and grief turn, turns to horror and horror can even result in tears. It was a well-meaning, I think, a well-intended man telling young pastors that in the millennial generation that we are, to whom we are ministering to, you need to have a quick and adequate sense of humor. You need to be aware of the cultural nuances and trends in music and in movies and in not one time, and he was very funny in telling the different nuances of these pop culture ideas, but he never said, you need to be serious. My wife was giving me some honest feedback and I didn't, I didn't know how to take it at first. She was actually not giving it to me. She was talking to someone else who asked her, how has Rick changed in his preaching over the years? She's heard more of my sermons than any other human. You can pray for her. And she says, well, I think he's more serious and he's not as funny. And at first I was thinking, you know, I, I can make people laugh. I can be funny. Are you laughing with me or at me right now? But I actually reflected on what she said, and it's true. The older I get, the more serious I see doing what we're doing right here really is. There are places that we should all laugh and enjoy one another, but this is predominantly a sophroneo, a serious, a reasonable, a sensible vocation. Wow, young men struggle in this area probably more than any other. They say, they, or should I say we, are prone to make decisions about our lives based on whims and wishes and wants and women's, women. Paul tells Titus, though, a significant part of his setting things in order at Crete is to bring young men into spiritual sobriety. How do you do that? You know the gospel. Because the gospel deals with the eternal reality of spending time forever with Jesus in heaven or, or souls that go to hell with never an appeal and never a second chance. We need to help our men who are training, who've lent their experience to us to control their passions like they're 
temper, their whims, sexual pleasures, their projects, school assignments, reading books, meeting with people, controlling their time, controlling their wallets, priorities, simply doing what you say you will do and letting your yes be yes and your no be no and knowing what to say yes to and what to say no to. It's shaping young men to value the priorities that will be serving them when they are in a position of vocational church leadership. What role do you have to play in that? It says teach the young men to be this. As men are progressing, don't look at them as if they are seminaries, seminoids, let's call them that. They're seminoids who know way more than you. They may, but it may not mean they're more mature than you. Watch the self-control of these men with their passions, with their projects, and with their priorities. Talk to them about it. Encourage them and give them feedback about it. Number two, an example of good deeds. We need to develop, cultivate an example of good deeds. This is really, you know, sometimes when you know the Greek language, you look into these lexicons, into these uh, syntactical studies, and you're expecting some giant insight. I looked this up. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. This is how you translate that in, in Greek. In everything, make sure to show yourself to be an example of good deeds. It's exact. In other words, they should be characterized by goodness. They're not to be the church curmudgeon. They're not to be the, the old pastor who children were afraid of. I grew up with a pastor like that. He terrified me. He walked around with a red Bible and yelled. And he was right in what he said, but it scared me to death. And when he would walk toward me, I would walk the other way. This is just saying, you're an example of good deeds. You're kind-hearted. You do right things. You're a servant. One of the first to come and the last to leave. In other words, your self-control that we just looked at in the previous, Titus has told himself to be self-controlled so that his example, his reputation is of doing good things. You're doing the right things. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12? Let no one look down on your youthfulness, your immaturity, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself, here it is, same word, as an example of those who believe. Are you ready and willing for these men to be your spiritual example, to be taught by them? Are you ready to tap them on the shoulder when they err on in these areas? They're here for four to six years, folks. We, we have the responsibility to watch and to encourage these things in these men to make sure that they are the example of what they teach and never the exception. Number three, a pattern of self-control, an example of good deeds. We also cultivate a precise theological mind, a precise theological mind mind. He says to Titus, you must exercise or possess purity in doctrine or literally soundness, solidness in doctrine. 
You know, as I, as I look around evangelicalism today, I see such a de-emphasis on doctrine, such a de-emphasis on reading, such an ignorance and distancing of the dead men who have gone ahead of us and who have said and left us a legacy to study and to know. Purity in doctrine, folks, is not, is not easy. It is hard work. 2 Timothy 2.15, we look at it as the great Awana verse. But Paul means something entirely different to Timothy when he says, be diligent, be aggressive, be responsible to show yourself as approved to God, as a workman who will not be ashamed. Why? Because you've handled the word of God accurately. I had a great discussion with someone just out in the atrium a few years ago who asked me, why, why do you teach Greek and, and Hebrew? And, and uh, we have an Aramaic uh, course that you can take. Why, why do you teach all this stuff? It's to make sure that these men can deal with the text with precision. Footnote, that doesn't mean your English Bible is inaccurate. It doesn't mean your English Bible needs corrected. It does mean that the original language in which God spoke, Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, and Greek, has nuances that are worth devoting your life to studying in the original languages. He says, purity and doctrine. Literally, the word means incorrupt, uncorrupted doctrine. Why is this important? Can I, can I show you? Just flip over for a moment to 1 Timothy, just two books backwards. I want you to see this and let it bounce off your own retina. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul telling another young pastor, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself, that's character, and to your teaching, that's purity and doctrine. Why, Paul? Why is this so important to pay close attention to? Persevere in these things. Don't do it once and it goes away. You need to have a lifelong pursuit of these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In other words, this is salvifically, eternally important. Your doctrine better be paid attention to. Let me just tell you, what these guys are doing, what my, our friends out at Midwestern are doing in their program, it's rigorous. It's hard. It's painful. It's intense language study. It's papers. It's reading. It's interacting. It is, it is very hard. But the prize is very worth it. Pray for these men. Encourage them. You want to have a great opportunity to, to grow? Take them out and say, I know you're reading a lot. Tell me what you're reading. Can you just tell me what you're reading? What are you studying? Our goal is to shepherd them a precise theological mind to push them and to test them so that they can defend the things that they believe. Number four, a reputation for dignity. A reputation for dignity. He just simply uses the little word dignified. It means to live with gravity and weight and respond in a given situation appropriately. 
It's an interesting word, responding appropriately. And that means that a, a man has to be trained to have a lot of range. In other words, you're not just the guy who can be the youth guy, not just the guy who can be uh, uh, the, the geriatrics guy and, and the guy who helps people on the front porch of heaven. You can't just be the college guy. You have to have a range to be able to be dignified or appropriately responding in any given situation. I really believe a part of our training is these, these men should be going on camping trips and, and uh, having a blast with, with the students and going to camp and getting sweaty. They also ought to know how to dress up, put a tie on, and sit in a dignified way at a, in an appropriate fashion. They have to have range. They have to be trained to have range. Why? Because we are all things to all men. And you help because, get this, you're a part of that range. You are somewhere on that spectrum. And number five, it's interesting that this is the apex, a trustworthy tongue. We need to cultivate in these future pastors a trustworthy tongue. Verse eight, and he, I want you to be, Titus, sound in speech. Same word, be solid, be grounded, be dependable in what you say. And then he says this word, this little phrase, which is beyond reproach. Does that remind you of Jesus? Does that remind you of James? If a man can control his tongue, he is a perfect man. Jesus, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means you can tell what's in a man's heart by listening to him talk. Let me encourage you. Listen, Mission Road, please have these men in your home. Have them over for dinner. Have them out for lunch and listen to what they say and how they say it and determine if their speech is sound and gracious and dignified and give them feedback on how they can grow in that area. What we say matters even how we say what we say matters. Listen, these men are gonna carry spiritual authority predominantly by what they say. I was with a group of pastors this last week, our TES summit, and I was talking with one of them, and we were kind of joking but not really laughing when we said, with the abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable. That's what Proverbs says, right? I make a living with my tongue. That's really scary. How you talk, men, will give others license to do the same. What you joke about will be what others joke about. You have a high responsibility. We should be giving them feedback on how they're controlling their tongues now, especially the way we joke and the humor we display. display. I think the enemy of our churches and the enemy of our souls is carefully watching to see if these men will stumble in what they say. There's a man I know, a man who I sat under as a, a young man who used to hear his sermons, who was careless with his tongue 40 years ago. Four decades later, it cost him his ministry. How do these men learn to be more careful and sound with their tongue? They interact with us. We help them. We train them. We minister to them. We receive ministry from them. 
You look over at James chapter three for a minute. I don't want to rob you of any application. Just two books to the right. It's the famous chapter on the tongue, right? (laughs) We know this chapter. Some of you have memorized this chapter. But do you notice how it starts? And have you really noticed what the context tells us about this admonition? James 3 verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, pastors, elders, overseers, my brethren, knowing that as such a leader, we will incur a stricter judgment. It's really not the best translation of that. It really means a more intense condemnation. In other words, you will have a higher accountability. Little footnote, elders and pastors and overseers don't have a different Standard, they have a higher accountability than to the same standard. We don't have a higher standard. We have a higher accountability to the only standard, which is Christian virtue. Now, verse four leans on that. For if we, he's just talking about teachers, all stumble, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature, a perfect man, able to bribe the whole body as well. And then he goes into this launch On the tongue. Yes, that is for you. Yes, that is for the average church member who sits in the pew, but don't miss the fact that this is first, this is first and primary, an application of verse one of the teachers of the church. I think of the traumatic experience of Isaiah seeing a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. You ever notice what happens? Cherubim flying around. He hears holy, holy, holy. Foundation of the temple is shaking. It's filled with Shekinah glory and incense smoke. All of his senses are overwhelmed. And in order to purify him, an angel goes to the altar. With tongues picks up a coal and touches Isaiah where? On his tongue. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. You know what that means? Isaiah recognized what Jesus said from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah recognized that the greatest vehicle for his sinfulness was his tongue, the way he speaks, what he says. And recognized that to be, the angel recognized, the Lord recognized that to purify him and to make him a fit and ready and willing vessel, it needed to be the first thing he addressed, his speaking. Sound and speech. Now back to Titus, he says, if we, if you're like this, the enemy will be put to shame. The devil will be checked. His reign will be Evicted, having nothing bad to say about us. Boy, the end of verse eight just haunts me. We are living in a generation because of the internet, because of social media, because of of the widespread um, access to cable news. We live in a day where it's so easy, easier than any generation that's ever lived for someone to have something bad to say about someone. 
Doesn't have to be true. Doesn't have to be corroborated. Doesn't have to be checked. You can say it. How do these men become this kind of man and leader? You know how they become that way? Oh, we teach them things in a seminary. That's important. But that develops, that maturity happens in contact with all of you, with feedback, with listening. These men need people to teach, being willing, willing set of ears. Can I just say this to let people, some men sometimes preach for the first time or times? And can I just be honest with you? It's about as good as when I first started preaching, which is not at all. When I moved out to Kansas, I was cleaning out my office and I found some notes from uh, 1983 of some sermons I preached. <laughs> and I threw them away, shredded them and threw them away as fast as I could. Because my thought is, what if I die and my sons find this? <laughs> they will say, who was our dad? Listen, we need to be patient and willing. Can I just ask you, can our church be a very safe and good place for a man to fail and develop and be equipped and be encouraged? That's our responsibility. It's not the seminaries. It's not Southerns or Midwesterns or even TESs. It's ours in the church. Richard Pratt it's a longer paragraph, but I, I got to read it. This is what he said. The agenda of evangelical seminaries are set primarily by scholars. Professors decide how students will spend their time. They determine how students priority, determine their priorities. They set the pace. And guess what scholars' agenda, guess what? Scholars' agendas seldom, not always, seldom match the needs of the church. Then he says this, can you imagine what kind of soldiers our nation would have if basic training amounted to reading books, listening to lectures, writing papers, and taking exams? We'd have dead soldiers. The first time a bullet whizzed past their heads on the battlefield, they'd panic. They would be running after the first explosion they saw. So what is basic training for the military? Recruits learn the information they need to know, but this is a relatively small part of their preparation. Most of basic training is devoted to supervised battle simulation. Recruits are put through harrowing emotional and physical stresses. They crawl under live bullet fire. They practice hand-to-hand -hand combat. Then he says this. If I could wave a magic scepter and change seminary today, I'd turn it into a grueling physical and spiritual experience. I would find ways to reach academic goals more quickly and effectively and then devote most of the curriculum to supervised battle simulation. I'd put students through endless hours of hands-on service to the sick and the dying, physically dangerous people, the Evangelism they need to accomplish, frequent preaching and teaching of the scriptures, and days on end of fasting and prayer. Seminary would either make them or break them. He ends by saying this. 
You know what would happen? Very few young men would want to attend. Only those who had been called by God would subject themselves to this kind of seminary. Yet they would be recruits for kingdom service, not mere students. They would be ready for the battle of gospel ministry. I think he's right. Now again, that doesn't mean we are the only ones who do it right. The institutional model doesn't do it right. That doesn't mean the institutional model does it right and the churches should always just send their best guys off. It's a balance. And it's not the same model for every man. The point of this sermon today is not to argue models, it's to argue for responsibility. You, as a Christian at Mission Road Bible Church, bear the weight and responsibility to input into these men, to receive their instruction, to understand their gifting, to check their calling, to evaluate their character, to get involved in their lives and let them get involved in yours, to allow them to experiment with their giftedness and to fail on our watch with the safety net of your loving, gracious commitment to them. We want them to struggle while they're in the nest. We don't want to kick them out of the nest into a church without any struggle and any maturity. Folks, we bear that together. That's not just me and the teachers and the other pastors in the TES network or the pastors and theologians and scholars out at Midwestern or the elders. This is your responsibility. So what do you do? Let me make it simple. Get to know these guys. Be patient with these guys. Be amazed by the things these guys are learning and apply yourself to that. And when we send them off it should be like the Ephesian elders sending off Paul at Miletus in Acts 20. And we weep and hold on to them because we'd love for them to stay. Because they're a part of our life, part of our body. But they're soldiers for Christ who he will deploy somewhere for his great glory in which we get to participate.